Inflation is here. What are you going to do about it? My name is Matthew Spazzitti. Welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzitti program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. You know, if you guys are new here to the show, first and foremost, I want to say thank you and like to ask you guys to take the 10 episode challenge. You know, what that is, is, well, it's exactly how it sounds. You know, it's not rocket science. You go back and you listen to the last 10 episodes. You know, this way you, um, you guys know the, the general theme of the show. You guys understand you get, you're going to get a lot more value out of it. All right. The re, the main reason I ask you to do it is because we don't talk about news in a vacuum, right? I'll oftentimes reference stuff that I will talk about in the past and I won't always have time to go over exactly, you know, do a synopsis or a summary of what I re- you know, of what I talked about before. But on top of all that, you know, because we don't talk about news and politics and whatever we talk about, we don't talk about it in a vacuum. You guys, I'm going to be referencing stuff you won't be aware of if you don't go back and listen to the last 10 episodes. So if you guys are really enjoying this episode and you're coming here for the first time, you're like, ah, I really like this guy. I really like all the stuff he has to say. Going back and doing the 10 episode challenge is one of the best ways to get the most out of the show. Trust me, you're going to get a lot more value out of it if you do that. So if you like in the show, take the 10 episode challenge. That said, you know, what we talk about here is, you know, I said financial freedom and economics. What do I mean by that? So, well, financial freedom, in my eyes, is taking control over the source of your income and becoming less dependent on an employer and on other people. Now, obviously, we're going to be dependent on some people for some things, right? The division of labor ensures this. We can't be, you know, we can't do everything. So we're going to be dependent and it, it, and that's why it's incredibly important to have a community of a culturally homogenous, like-minded people. But there are still some things that we can do to become as independent as we possibly can. And to me, that is controlling the source of our income. You know, it's I've always held, all right, and I've held this for a long time, that your freedom is tied to your wealth, okay? How wealthy you are defines how free you are. The wealthier you are, the freer you can be. This makes logical sense, right? Because the more money you have, the more cash flow you have, the more options that are presented to you. You know, you're not limited to buying that one car or that one house. You have a lot more options the more money you have. You don't have to buy the latest and greatest. You can buy something that's a little cheaper and may maintain more of your money, but you have more options, right? And more so than just when we're buying products and services. But when you have more money, you get to decide how you control your life. Now, yes, obviously, if you're if you're going to take control of the source of your income, what you're effectively doing is you are owning a business, right? That's the only way to really do it. You have to own a business of some kind, and eventually, and what that does is you you're going to have to work pretty hard at it. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of effort. You don't necessarily have to work less than what you would with somebody else. In many cases, because you're bootstrapping it, because you can't afford to hire the ability to outsource everything. A lot of times you're going to be working more than what you did, at least initially when you're, than you did when you were working for somebody else. So, but still, it gives you more flexibility. You get to control your life a lot more, control your schedule a lot more. This also can give you the ability to travel more. You don't have to take time off or you ask a boss for permission to take time off. You can travel, you know, whenever you want, assuming you know, all else being equal, you know, you don't have other kids and stuff that, you know, that ultimately can cause you to, you know, not be able to do those types of things, right? Other things that don't get in the way. But on top of all that, you don't have to worry about these, I mean, these economic crises that come along every now and then, right? I mean, the last one was 2008, and now we have another, we had another one in 2020 with the lockdowns. You know, a lot of people are going to blame it on COVID. It wasn't COVID, right? No one had to react with lockdowns. We didn't have lockdowns for wars. We didn't even have lockdowns for past diseases that were by far, by and large, a lot more severe than what COVID-19 is. 
You also have to understand I subscribe to the theory that COVID-19 is really nothing more than the flu, and the only reason it seems that way is because all the information surrounding it is one big massive scam. It's all manipulated to get you to think that it's worse so that you'll do whatever the heck they tell you to do. It's, it's all about control. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. You may be offended by that, and if you are, then maybe this is not the right show for you. But, you know, look, if we control the source of our income, then we have more say in what we can do with our lives. We don't have to be tied down to a particular country either. You know, a lot of people, typically they never leave the country that they're born in, but you don't have to be that way. If so, if your country goes bad, like say down the pathway of the Soviet Union or any other terrible, terrible, you know, governments out there like North Korea and all that kind of stuff. I mean, any, any country that went bad, you don't have to be stuck there. You can leave, right? If war breaks out in your nation, you can leave. You don't have to stay there. There's nothing tying you down in that way. You can up and leave, and that, ladies and gentlemen, comes from controlling, not only controlling the source of your income, but having what we like to call here on the show mobile income. You could take your money, your source of income, you could take it wherever you want to go. Wherever you want to be, wherever you are. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is not just a, an insurance policy against your, you know, basically country imploding, but it's also a freeing experience. Like I said, you can go and you can travel whenever you want. You can work. When you travel, if you want to go to a place like, say, Costa Rica with beautiful beaches, absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous country, you want to go somewhere like that and you want to work there for like a month or two or three or whatever, you can do that. You could totally do it because you control where that money is coming from. So anyways, without belaboring the point any further, you know, we talk about that a lot. And then on the flip side, we talk about economics, right? We talk about, and I feel that economics is, is the back of the other, of the other side of the coin, the flip side of that coin, right? So you have financial freedom on one side, you have economics on the other. Economics sends us signals. It tells us, you know, it, it, we, it, it gives us writing on the wall that we can see that can help us to position our lives so that we can ultimately benefit from what's coming down the road. Sometimes things that are coming down the road are not necessarily negative things. Sometimes they're positives. They're opportunities that can really may strengthen our position in life. Sometimes they are negative that we would want to try to avoid. But either way, economics gives us the framework. It gives us the glasses, if you will, so that we can see what's coming down the road. And if we can see it, then we know how to position ourselves for it. So really, I view them as backs of the same coin. And that's why I talk about them so much. And I'm very passionate about it. I'm passionate about, you know, financial freedom, entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it. I'm passionate about that. And I'm also highly passionate about economics. I subscribe to Austrian economics. All right. So if you you ever wondering, that's the field of economics I like. It's the one I subscribe to. And uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely great. So that's what we focus here on the show. And uh, we also talk about, hey, whatever the heck I want to talk about. It's my show. So if I'd want to completely derail and talk about watches, I'm a huge watch guy. I love collecting watches. If I want to talk about that someday, then hey, I can. If I want to talk about cars, I can. Odds are I'm probably not going to want to talk about that, but if I want, I, I'll talk about whatever I want. So whatever I, whatever I want to talk about, that's what we do here on the show, right? The, we, we mostly cover financial freedom and economics. That's pretty much the main focus here. So with that said, what are we going to talk about today? Today, uh, you know, I really debated on this. I have, I'm having a really hard time getting back into the swing of things. Ever since I moved, I feel like my life has just been turned upside down. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, I've never moved with a one-year-old before because, well, she's my first, she's my first daughter. She's my first kid. And frankly, you know, moving was just, it was crazy. I mean, you know, we hired great movers and everything and, and the process went very smoothly, but then my sister had to move around the exact same time that we were. So I had to go help her out. And there was just a ton of things that happened all in sequence, like all in the row that kind of prevented me from getting back to it. And I've just had the worst time just getting back on and, and, and hitting the ground running, right? I've had a horrible time with that you know but everything is for the most part i mean we're not completely moved in now we still got to go to the storage unit and get some stuff there there's still boxes here and there but for the most part we are getting back to a sense of normalcy i'm still trying to figure out where i'm gonna put the office right now you know we got this nice loft area that we're not really using there's no bathroom or anything up here it's just a loft and it's a great it's a great place a great space you know lots of room and i thought this could be my studio right i could have lights i could have my camera up here for youtube videos although frankly I haven't had done, I haven't had time to do a lot of YouTube videos and whatnot, but 
you know, I have to be honest, if once you start to get out the lights, you can't really take them down. I mean, you can take them down, but up here, there's no closet to put them in. But once you start doing the lights and everything, it, it's really more convenient to just leave everything up and not touch it. Well, I'm still not in that position to where I have a whole room dedicated just to my stuff. And on top of that, this up, upstairs loft area, it doesn't have any doors or windows or anything of the sort. It's got a lot of open space. So, you know, uh, if you guys hear any echoey noises that might be a little bit, I try to do some sound removal to try and uh, negate that, but sometimes, you know, what are you going to do? And <laughs> also, I can't go recording stuff if my family's downstairs and my wife is downstairs with my daughter taking care of her, playing with her, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you're going to hear that. So I have to have the entire home quiet. So... I'm probably going to have to get uh, pushed down into the bedroom. You know, we're thinking about trying to find some space there for a tiny desk. And then I'm looking at getting a laptop because my old laptop, it's an old Alienware uh, M17X. It, I got it year, like six, seven years ago. I got it a long time ago. It was, and I got it for gaming. You know, at the time I was really gaming. Now I don't game as much as I used to, although I am, get, I have gotten back into it a bit more uh, on my phone and stuff. I had some games on my phone that I play. And I've been playing that a little bit more, uh, more so than I'd like to admit. But, <laughs> you know, uh, but as a result of that, I need I need a better computer, one that's a bit newer and uh, can handle a lot of the stuff that I'm doing. So, and, and something that's mobile, too. I really need it to be mobile. So I'm thinking about getting a laptop and a desk and putting it in my in the downstairs room and whatnot. So in our bedroom and, you know, maybe hopefully that'll work out. But it's going to be a little bit. I'm still waiting on, you know, a computer. I, I'm, I'm going to buy a MacBook Pro. You know, for those of you who are interested in knowing if you care at all, <laughs> I'm going to buy a MacBook Pro. I've never really been a Mac user aside from phones. I've always been a PC kind of guy, you know, uh, uh, Windows and whatnot. But, you know, and I still say that Windows is superior for desktop because you can modify the hardware inside. Now, if you're not tech savvy, that might not be your thing. For me, I've been doing that for years. I've been customizing my own computers and things like that nature uh, or of that nature. And it's been a lot. It's been really great. But for laptops, you can't really your customizations is very limited. A lot of stuff is hard-grained into the motherboard and things of that nature. So for that, I'd like to try a MacBook Pro and uh, see how that goes out. But the new one comes out in September, so I don't want to buy the one that's, that's you know, currently here. I want to wait for the new one and then go ahead and buy it. So I'm looking to buy a laptop looking to get a desk, looking to move everything. And so anyways, with all that said, there's still a lot of other stuff that's going on. And it's just, I don't know, it's just made it very, very difficult to uh, to do a lot of work. But I'm also making some other changes, thinking about putting my daughter in a Mother's Day Out program at the church that me and my wife go to. So that would be, th that'll be pretty cool too, if I can do that, because that'll give me at least two days a week where at least for uh, uh, the the big the chunk of the morning and then a little bit in the afternoon it just it'll give me some time to work a lot more time than what I currently have because for those of you who don't know and I'm sorry I know I'm talking a lot about my life here uh, and not really getting into the information well don't worry we will get into that but uh, you know one of the biggest issues if you guys are new and you're just joining me you know we have new people joining the show all the time so this is why I, I belabor this point but or this is why I'm going into it but you know, to be completely honest with you my full-time job isn't this podcast right uh, there's a couple of things that I do I, I back test my trading strategies I try to create trading content uh, I haven't been able to do that for a while now but for the most part and then I do this podcast right but I have to be honest with you that that that's all on the back that's kind of all like icing on the cake if I have time to I make a lot of effort to do back testing in the podcast right let alone social media work in terms of promoting my own content it's really difficult but what I what I do full time is not actually this the show or back testing what I do full time is taking care of my daughter See, I'm a stay-at-home dad, and I don't have the ability for my wife to be a stay-at-home mom, although she wants to be, and I'd like to provide her that ability, and I, I'm currently working on it, but for right now, I can't give her that uh, that, abi that, that ability yet. So I'm a stay-at-home dad, so the bulk of my day is taking care of my daughter, and she's so young right now that she constantly wants me to play with her. She does. If I get my laptop out, she just wants to come up and start banging on all the keys, you know, and I, even if I can tell her no and she'll get disinterested, I can either, you know, I even discipline her to tell her no. She still does it, you know. It's a work in progress, right? Sometimes she gets it and she stops. Most of the time, not. And as she gets older, it's gotten a little bit better, but still, I'm not able to work on the stuff that I need to work on in order to, you know, push a lot of the stuff ahead because I'm taking care of my daughter. So putting her in Mother's Day out is something I, I, I'm looking forward to. I'm also kind of going to be 
I, I feel like I'm, I'm gonna miss her a lot, you know? And it's really weird. I've never had her in daycare. I've worked in daycare uh, for 10 years, uh, years ago, like 10, 11 years. I, I worked in daycares because I was, uh, you know, that was a job I had in college that I just continued to have even out of college for a long time. It was an easy job, you know, decent hours, decent pay. It was good. And, and I always told myself I'd never put my kids in daycare because even though the daycare programs I worked in were great, I still wouldn't do it because there's so many parents who literally are letting the daycares raise their children for them. And I never wanted to be that parent. I never wanted to be in that boat. So putting her in a Mother's Day Out program is not necessarily daycare. She's not being watched all day, but it's really hard for me to do that. Like, that's really hard. I, for a long time, I was very adamantly against the idea. But you know what? I need, I need to be moving the needle. I need to be making more money. I need to be able to take over and be the primary financial provider in my family. And right now, unfortunately, I'm just not. And so I'm not, so I'm trying to become that and I just, I need more time. But I'll be honest, I get in the way of a lot of that. There's a lot of uh, time issues here. I mean, I don't always manage my time the way that I should. In fact, most of the time I don't. I struggle with that. I always have all my life. So th there's a lot of other issues that, that that's not external. There's a lot of internal problems that I have and that make it difficult for me to, you know, do what I need to do. But, uh, you know, hey, I never claim to be perfect. But anyways, hey, let's, we've talked for a long time about me, what's going on in my life, and all of that stuff. So, Let's talk, let's get into what the show is actually going to be about. So today, I wanted to talk more about inflation. Uh, Daniel Lacaye, he is a, a European Austrian economist who also, okay, he also has a really, really cool bu uh, business. He's an economist and he's a fund manager. He's the author of a number of best-selling books like The Freedom or Equality, Escape from the Central Bank Trap, The Energy World is Flat, and Life in the Financial Markets. He's a really, really great guy. He posts stuff on uh, the Mises Institute all the time. He's a professor of global economy at IE Business School in Madrid, okay? So he's really, really great. He's got a good, I like to read his stuff a lot. He's got a really good handle on the economy. He's on YouTube if you guys want to go check him out, but he here's an article that he's been saying that supply bottlenecks as an excuse for inflation. So that's the article we're going to be reading from Daniel Lacaye, but he's basically saying that supply bottlenecks and supply chain disruptions, this isn't really true that it's actually inflation. It's the increase in the monetary supply that is being injected into the economy. And as you have more money going for the same amount of goods, then ultimately you will have higher prices in, in this, in that particular environment, if those are the things that are happening. And that's what he says is happening. See, I've always said that while I'm, I've never said that um, inflation wasn't causing prices to rise, right? I never said that it wasn't. All I was saying is, yeah, I can also see an argument for supply chain disruptions, you know, for many companies at the start of the pandemic were, you know, restricting their production. They had to cut back a lot more, lay off some workers, uh, all that kind of stuff. And now that demand is rushing back, they're struggling to crank production back up. So I was saying I could totally see that as being one of, of many contributing factors that's pushing prices higher. So uh, th that's always been my take. But he's saying that supply bottlenecks and supply chain disruptions are not actually happening. They're just an excuse for, by the Federal Reserve, by the central bank, uh, to try to cover up the idea that the money rising is not because of inflation. Okay. Now, when I, when you hear me talk about inflation, if you guys are new, you guys need to understand that I'm not going to be referring to inflation as prices rising because that's not what inflation is. Okay. It just isn't. Even if you go up and look up the definition of inflation today, I believe it still is the increase in the monetary supply. However, nobody will know this because you haven't been taught this in school. No one you know is more than likely saying this, but inflation is not an increase in general prices. Okay. It is an increase in the supply of money that exists in an economy. Okay. You print money, you increase the supply, and then you circulate it. You inject it into the economy. And then as it circulates, it chooses the goods that it wants to go into, goods and services. And the goods and services that it goes into, those prices are going to rise, assuming that the production in that area doesn't equally increase with the production, with the increase in the supply of money, right? Because it's a simple supply and demand, uh, you know, concept, right? Economic concept. If you have more of any one thing, it becomes less valuable, right? This is the law of diminishing marginal utility, okay? It, whatever you have 
the more you have of something, the less valuable it becomes, right? I mean, it's not that hard to understand. I mean, think of it as a, gosh, think of it as a hierarchy. Think of it as a list. At the top of the list, you have things that are the most important that you have to spend your resources on, right? You have to spend your money at the top of things. These are things like your, your rent, your mortgage, stuff like that. Stuff that you absolutely have. Food, clothing, shelter, water, yada, yada, yada. At the bottom are things that are a lot less important. Okay, things that you don't necessarily need, like the fancy car. You don't need the fancy car. You might desire it more, but you don't need it, right? You know, it's not that important to you. You already have a car. It works just fine. It's not as fancy, but, you know, these or a big fancy house. Again, you already have a house or you already have a place to stay. You may not need a big fancy house. It's less important, but it's something that you want. It might be something you desire more but not necessarily the most important. Well, as your supply of money grows, right? When you have very little, you have to use it on the stuff at the top of the list. You know, the stuff that's the most important. But as your supply of money grows, you start using it on things further down the list, things that are maybe maybe more desirable, maybe not, but things that you want, but they're not as important. It's not necessary for life. And so as, so when you look at it in that way, the more you have of money, the less valuable it becomes, and the more you start spending it on things that you don't are not necess- are not really necessary to live life. They're not as important, so the money becomes less important. And that you know, and that is how you can view the law of diminishing marginal utilities in a very very simplistic way of viewing it, or at least I, I think that's simplistic. So you may disagree, but I hope I explained it well. But so. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what that's what, that's what happens when infl- when governments engage in inflation. When they control the money supply and they increase that money supply, okay? If the goods in an economy do not also increase with it and they stay the same or get reduced, prices are going to rise if that inflated money flows in to those products and services. Again, also another misnomer about inflation, inflation does not increase Across the board, when people talk about it, they're always talking about rising prices, which, as we've already said, is wrong. But they also talk about it as if it's going to cause everything to go up. And this isn't always the case. When, when inflation occurs and it gets, and all that new money gets injected into the economy, it doesn't go everywhere all at once. In point of fact, you could see this right now. This has been happening for years. California is incredibly expensive compared to, say, Texas, right? Why is that? Well, a lot of it's because of regulation, which reduces land. It reduces affordable housing being built. It makes it harder for companies to do business. So there's a reduction in productivity, in supply, because of regulations. There's a reduction of productivity in the way of of reducing competition because it's harder to have a business in California than in a lot of other states. But on top of all that, a lot of the money printing that, that happens, a lot of it flows into California. A lot of rich and wealthy people that get that money first spend it, and guess what? Where they live? Oh, yeah, they live in California. A lot of them do. They're leaving now, but a lot of them do. So the what you need to think about here is that California, the prices are rising all the time. It's a limited, again, limited production, limited supply, but at the same time, there's a lot of inflated dollars that are flowing into California, which is just exasperating the problem, just increasing prices more so than anywhere else. So it, it happens, you know, it, it, it definitely happens. And it's been, and, and frankly, it's been happening in the entire, you know, country for quite some time. But if you contrast what's happening in California, say like Texas, well, nobody ever really wanted to move to Texas. Who can blame them? The weather's crazy. It's hot. It's very, very humid. You know, uh, there's not a lot of beautiful scenery here. I mean, there's beautiful scenery, but not a ton of it, right? So the money fly flows more into California than Texas, and as a result of that, Texas is cheaper. And on top of that, Texas doesn't have a lot of, uh, they don't have quite the same amount of regulatory burden and all that kind of stuff as well. So anyways, so that being said, you know, that's why I talk about it the way I do. And, uh, you know, I, I I differ from a lot of people in that way. You know, it's just, I, I've read a lot of economic books and, it, <laughs> that, well, that's why, you know, uh, you know, particularly a lot of Ludwig von Mises and he, and, and that's a, a point that he stresses quite, quite consistently is that, you know, inflation is an increase in the supply of money that exists in an economy, not an increase in general prices. That, that's merely a symptom of inflation. 
And frankly, if you're not new to Austrian economics, then you might already have been aware of that. But anyways, let's go ahead and, and hop into the article because we're just talking about a lot of other stuff. And I really want to get into this article. It's a great article. So anyways, again, it's at the Mises Institute. It's a Mises Wire. It's by Daniel Lacaye. The title is Supply Bottlenecks as an Excuse for Inflation. Let's go ahead and hop into it. One of the arguments most used by central banks regarding the increase in inflation is that it is because of bottlenecks and that the recovery in demand has created tensions in the supply chain. However, the evidence shows us that most commodities have risen in tandem in an environment of a wide level of spare capacity and even overcapacity. If we analyze the utilization ratio of, in, of industrial and productive capacity, we see that countries such as Russia, 61%, or India, 66%, are at a clear level of structural overcapacity and a utilization of productive capacity that remains still several points lower than that of February 2020. In China, it is 77%, still far from the 78% pre-pandemic level. In fact, if we analyze the main G20 countries and the largest industrial and commodity suppliers in the world, we see that none of them have levels of utilization of productive capacity higher than 85%. There is ample available capacity all over the world. Inflation is not a transport chain problem either. The excess capacity in the shipping and transport sector is more than documented, and in 2020, new capacity was added in both freights and air transport. Ships delivered in 2020 added 1.2 million 20-foot equivalent units, TEUs, of capacity. With 596,000 TEUs of capacity on ultra-large container vessels, ULCVs, ships with capacity for more than 18,000 TEUs, according to Drury, a shipping consulting firm. International Air Transport Association, IATA, Chief Economist Brian Pierce also warned that the problem of, that the problem of capacity was increasing in, in calendar year 2020. One of the important side effects of the chain of monetary stimuli, low interest rates and fiscal stimulus programs, is the increase in the number of zombie companies. The BIS, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, has shown this phenomenon in several empirical studies. Ryan Banerjee, senior economist at the BIS, identified the constant policy of lowering rates as a key factor in understanding the exponential increase in zombie companies, those that cannot cover their debt interest bills with operating profits. The constant refinancing of debt from zombie companies also leads to the per the perpetuation of overcapacity because a key process for economic progress, such as creative destruction, is eliminated or at least limited. Low interest rates and high liquidity have perpetuated or increased global installed excess capacity in aluminum, iron ore, oil, natural gas, soybeans, and many other commodities. Why does inflation rise if overcapacity is perpetuated and there is enough transport capacity? We've forgotten the most important factor, the monetary one, or some central banks want you to make us forget it. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, explained Milton Friedman many decades ago. More supply of money directed towards scarce assets, be it real estate or raw materials. The purchasing power of money goes down. Why did they tell us that there was no inflation before COVID-19 if money supply increased also massively? The big difference between 2020 and the past years is that previously the Federal Reserve or the ECB, the European Central Bank, increased money supply at or below the levels of demand for money, measured as demand for credit and use of currency. For example, the increase in the money supply of the United States was close to 6%, with a global demand for dollars that grew between 7 and 9%. In fact, the world maintains a dollar shortage of about $17 trillion, according to Luke Groman of Force for the Trees. This keeps the dollar or euro relatively stable, and a percent that inflation is low. However, there were red flags before COVID-19. There were protests all over the world, including Europe, against the rising cost of living. The world's reserve currencies export inflation to other countries. What happened in 2020? For the first time in decades, the Federal Reserve and the main central banks increased money supply well above demand. The response to the forced shutdown of activity with massive money printing generated an unprecedented inflationary wave. The economy did not collapse due to the lack of liquidity or credit crunch, but due to the lockdowns. The 2020 monetary tsunami launched a global boomerang effect with three consequences. Emerging market currencies plummeted against the dollar because their central banks copied the U.S. policy without the global demand that the U.S. dollar enjoys. The second effect was a disproportionate amount of money flowing to risky assets joined by more flows to take overweight positions and scarce assets. That excess money made investors move from being underweight in commodities to overweight, generating a synchronized and abrupt rally. The third key factor is that extraordinary measures typically 
cycle of a financial or demand crisis were taken to mitigate a supply shock, generating an unprecedented rise in money with no added credit demand. More money and scarce assets is not a price increase, but a decrease in the purchasing power of money. What is the risk? The history of money since the Roman Empire always tells us the same thing. First, money is aggressively printed with the excuse that there is no inflation. When inflation rises, central banks and governments tell us that it is transitory or due to multi-casual effects. And when it shoots up, governments present themselves as the solution, imposing price controls and restrictive measures on exports. It is not a theory. All of us who have lived in the 70s know it. That is why it is dangerous to pursue conglomerate stocks as an inflationary bet, because when price controls and government intervention increases, margins collapse. The risk of stagflation is not small, and the so-called value stocks are not a good bet in this environment. In stagflation, commodities with tight supply dynamics, gold and silver, high-margin sectors, and bonds of stable currencies support a portfolio. However, most sectors underperform as we saw in the 70s, where the S&P 500 generated very weak returns significantly below inflation. What can be different from other episodes? Only a drastic reaction from central banks can change it. However, the question is, will central banks tighten policy when government deficits are soaring and even a small increase in sovereign yields can generate a debt crisis, will they react to what is clearly, as always, a monetary inflationary process? Well, the answer is no. <laughs> That's the end, of the end of the article, by the way. But the, the answer is, is unequivocally no. They, they're not going to do that. I mean, that would be the, re, the, response, the correct response would be to stop printing money and to raise inflation, to raise interest rates. Now, well, I say raise. Really what they need to do, if they need to stop manipulating interest rates, what they really need to do is just take the hands off the wheel. Let the economy do what it will. Is, does that mean that short-term destruction is inevitable? I would say yes. You know, there's going to be a lot of negative side effects to that, but it's not because you did the right thing. It's because you did the wrong thing for so many freaking years, right? Guys, ladies and gentlemen, look, inflation has been around for a long time, long before the lockdowns came around, okay? You know, inflation is is measured by the consumer price index, and this is a very terrible, arbitrary index, right? It's it's not, look, for people who use the CPI a lot, the basket of goods in there is completely subjective, okay? So I wouldn't hold the CPI very high in terms of a sign of inflation, but it is giving a sign of inflation. Make no mistake about that, but it's a very poor measurement. It's very poor, okay? And it's totally subjective, and oftentimes it's used to show that inflation is low so that people don't freak out. It's actually used to cover up the eye of inflation. They say it's used to show you inflation. Of course, they're going to say that. Really, what they're saying is they're, what, what they're, the true reason for it and its true use is to make inflation not seem so bad so that people don't freak out. But with that state, the CPI rose 4.2% back if you're looking back 12 months ago. Looking ahead to the next 12 months, however, tells a much different story. April's monthly inflation rate came in at 0.8%. That means the annualized rate is 9.6, more than double than the look back rate. Why do I say that? Uh, first and foremost, that's information from an article that I have here. It's a it's an ebook that I got from a su- subscription service that I'm subscribed to. So I can't really tell you um, why. Because I, it's it's from Sovereign Man Blueprint. Okay, it's their it's their entry level subscription uh, program. I, I'm actually subscribed to it, and they sent out this ebook and whatnot. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's an 18 page, 18 page document. But basically, what he was saying is that inflation is not that high or is not that low. They're estimating that if you're looking forward for 12 months, 9.6 percent. Whereas before, I think it was like what did we say before? If you look at back tw- in the past 12 months, it was 4.2 percent. So clearly, prices are rising, okay? They're not rising across the board, but they are rising. I don't know about you guys, but in, in, in North Texas, where we live, me and my wife and my family, we live in Dallas, uh, Dallas, Texas, the, DF, the DFW Metroplex area, right? And, you know, really, we haven't seen a massive increase in prices, okay? But there's another thing that this actual ebook talks about, which I thought was very, very, very informative. It talks about a concept I had never heard of before. Okay, maybe you guys have. I don't know. I have it. It's called value deflation. Now, to give you guys an example to understand value deflation is this. Let's say that the things are going crazy. Companies are announcing like they are currently doing or they have already done that they're going to be raising prices across all their products. Okay, Johnson & Johnson have done this. There's a whole bunch of companies out there that have done this. 
already. All right, so let's say they do this. But what you you don't actually notice that the prices are going up at all. You know, the same $2 toilet paper roll that you've been buying or paper towel roll, whatever, is the same $2. But if you really pay attention to details, one thing's changed. And I'm not trying to say this is actually currently happening. I'm saying this could be happening. I'm not sure. But this is another thing to look out for. That before, your $2 used to buy a paper towel roll that was giving you 100 sheets. Now, as prices are rising, what they what, instead of raising prices, what they do is they reduce how many sheets they give you. So instead of your $2 getting 100 sheets, now you're getting 80 sheets or 50 sheets. So basically, your money is not buying as much. The same $2 buys 80 sheets instead of 100. So while, because and why would a business do this? They do this a lot sometimes, or, well, I don't know if they do this a lot, but this does happen. They do this because they, if they raise prices, demand drops. Now it doesn't drop a lot, but demand does go down for their goods and services. So, which is why companies always want to try to avoid raising prices as much as they possibly can. You know, because that means less and less people are going to buy it. It, it, it really pinches people's wallets and pocketbooks, right? And purses, whatever, wherever you store your money, you know, it pinches it and it makes it go a lot farther, a lot less further than what it did before. So instead of raising prices and reducing demand, companies say, well, why don't we just give them less goods for their money? It's the same prices. They might not even notice it. And you know what? A lot of people, when that happens, a lot of people don't notice. You know why? I mean, when was the last time you came home from a grocery store and you took off all the prices of all the goods that you bought and you put it in an Excel sheet and you dated it and you tracked the prices? And then the next weekend, you went to the grocery store, you did the same thing and you did that for several years. How many of you have honestly done it? I can tell you, I haven't done it. I've always thought about doing it, but I've, I've never done it. People don't track prices for stuff. Not really, not unless it's a noticeable increase. Now, I know there are a lot of people in throughout the country that are noticing a very noticeable, sizable increase in prices, okay? Uh, you could definitely see this certainly in the real estate market. Real estate, I mean, my wife and I, we bought our house for 208. It was two years ago when we bought it. We sold that home for 270. $270,000. You do the freaking math, Okay. We sold it for a crap ton of money within two flipping years. Can you believe that? I I wasn't even trying to sell it for two fifty. We listed it as at two thirty five or something, two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. I think it was two thirty five. That's what we listed it on. In point of fact, we were hoping just to break even when we sold the home. We were hoping that we would maybe make a little bit of money, but not much. We had no idea that it was going to go that crazy. We put the house on the market. And within 24 hours, we had like five offers. And then, and we had like people constantly coming, wanting to come in and see the house. It got so crazy. We couldn't even live in the house anymore. We had to move out. We basically got all of our stuff. We, we, we made the house look as nice as it did. And we moved out so people could come in all, all day long. And they literally did. And then when all the offers came in, the 270 was the highest we got. We couldn't believe it. And not even the real estate agent believed it. We're like, wow, that's, that's all. I mean, it wasn't a, a trashy home. It was a starter home, right? It was the first home we ever bought. It was a, it was a first time home, but 270. Nah, nah, it wasn't worth it. That it wasn't worth that. I mean, we improved the house. We didn't improve it that much unless there's a pot of gold hidden in the backyard, which I would have loved to have found. And, uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't, I don't know. So inflation has been causing prices to rise for quite some time now long before the the virus. Now I know that when we sold the house it was it was oh gosh I think it, it was in 2021 I think I believe. It was in 2021 when we sold the home. Okay? So I yes, I I am fully fully well aware that uh you know interest rates were lowered again and money printing was already happening, but what I'm saying is that everybody understands that prices have been rising and and it's beginning more and more expensive to live with regards to where your home whether it's renting right uh, my wife and I we are currently renting a two bedroom two bath townhouse we rent and it's like it's got more square footage than my house had okay but i have to say this 
we're renting it for a lot more money than what we did when we lived in a townhouse before we bought our own home. So we used to live in a two-bedroom, two-bath townhouse, and it was great. It was a nice place. But we lived there for a heck of a lot cheaper than what it was now. It was like the difference of like 400 bucks, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. I think it was like difference of like $400. Insane. And, and, and to, to be exact, the numbers were in the old townhouse that we were living in, I, I want to say we were paying like 1500 a month. And now, years later, and I think it's uh it's been a long time. We lived in the we we got out of that house the, that townhouse and we moved in with my in laws to save up more money for a down payment. Then so we lived with my in laws for a year. Then we moved into an, an apartment. I think we moved into that place for a year. Oh gosh, I mean I, I don't know. It was probably like maybe six years ago that we lived back in the townhouse. Well, actually, uh, let me see. It was twenty. Yeah, maybe about six years ago, or or maybe five or six years, somewhere around there. Either way, going from fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred, I'm sorry, to nineteen hundred. I mean, and again, my numbers may not be exact, right? My my memory is a little fuzzy on the prices. If I ask my wife, she would she would remember. She remembers everything. Uh, my memory is not quite that great. Uh, but still, still, that's a big price difference. Okay, housing has gone up, and housing's not the only thing. Look at the stock market. That's been going up. They've been dumping money into that for, for decades now. They're dumping money into the bond market. Ladies and gentlemen, inflation is all around us. And it, it's been here for a while, but it's, it's happening. So, but Daniel Lakai was basically just saying is that, you know, central banks are always using other, other things as an excuse. And this, this is how they do it. This is how they're able to do it. They're always using something else as an excuse to say, oh, it's not really inflation. Oh, it's not really inflation. It's, it, no, it's not our fault. Because if people understood inflation for the real reason, this is why I define inflation differently. This is why I went into that before I went into this article. The reason I specify and I make a distinction and make a big deal out of it, the reason I do that and the, is because if you don't understand what inflation really is and you think infra- inflation is a general increase in prices, then guess what? You're being manipulated. You're being lied to. The people who will tell you that, the central bank, they want you to believe that because it, because if you forget or you don't know what is really causing inflation, then they can blame it on anything they want, anything. And they do all the time. They blame it on, you know, transitory supply chain bottlenecks and disruptions. They blame it on business owners. They blame it on all kinds of stuff. You know? But in reality, if you know what inflation really is, it's not an increase in prices. It's an increase in the supply of money that exists in an economy. Right? Now, if you merely print money and you just stiff, stuck it on, stick it under your mattress or put it in your safe at home, hide it in your closet, bury it in the backyard, whatever. If that's all you do, then no. Prices aren't going to rise. You have to inject it into the economy. It has to be spent. It has to change hands. Now, the velocity of money is also, uh, many economists will come out and say that the velocity of money, the faster money changes hands, it makes prices go up faster. Okay. Or it makes prices go up and all that kind of stuff. Again, that is merely a symptom of inflation. Price, you know, money does not change hands very quickly. Money is enabled to exchange hands that quickly because you increased the amount of money and the supply of goods never changed. So people are trying to buy. Now that they have all, all this money, they go off and they just, oh, I can buy more stuff. But guess what? Everybody else is in the same boat. So everyone starts buying more things and there become shortages, right? So people start buying things faster and faster. Assuming that this, this is what happens when people start to feel like inflation is never going to end right? It's really not that hard to understand. I mean, you think about it like this, okay? I'm going to actually do a quote here from the ebook from the Sovereign Man Blueprint, okay? And again, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this excerpt is really, really, really good. If you guys are interested, I'm not affiliated with them in any which way, shape, or form. I have no financial stake in this. I am subscribed to Sovereign Man Blueprint because I like it a lot. I wish I could be subscribed to the more expensive stuff, the confidential and all their other stuff. I can't right now. So Blueprint is what I can do. It's like nine bucks a month, all right? And I got – now, I don't know if that's the the price – 
I got in on a on a, uh, a like a deal they were running, and I'm not sure if that's the normal price or not. But it's not that expensive. If you guys want this information, you can easily go and get it. Okay, and you get articles and ebooks and stuff that they write all the time. And it's not just about economics; it's also about privacy, internet privacy. You know, uh, it's all it's about a whole bunch of really great stuff. So, anyways. May, but this is an excerpt from the, 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 and I don't know who wrote it. The author is not actually listed on this ebook. So just to, just to let you guys know that. But anyways, here, here it is. Think about it like this. Suppose you live in a very primitive economy that produces a thousand apples per day. And for the sake of simplicity, that's the only product or service that, that exists. Apples. If the total money supply in this primitive economy is a thousand dollars, then this means that each apple would more or less cost you a dollar each. But then one day, some sagacious central banker, and I have no idea if I'm saying that word correctly, sagacious, but anyways, some sagacious central banker decides to double the money supply in order to stimulate the economy. So now there's $2,000 in the system, but the economy is still only producing 1,000 apples. Sooner or later, a bidding war for apples will ensue until the price of each apple rises to $2 an apple. This is inflation. Wealth isn't created because central bankers print more money. Wealth is created when pr- production increases. Absolutely amazing example. Okay, that is the example. The $1,000 goes to the 1,000 apples. But if you increase the supply of money and you double it to $2,000, but you don't increase the supply of, of apples, there's a limited supply of apples, but now more people have the money. So now they're going to be going into price bidding wars and because there's a limited supply. more de- they're, they're artificially increasing the demand but not increasing the production, right? So it goes up in price to $2. That's what happens. It's a supply and demand issue, ladies and gentlemen. But again, if you don't know what inflation really is, again, the increase in the monetary supply or the increase in the supply of money that exists in an economy, if you don't know what that is, they can blame it on anything they want. They can blame it on transitory, multi-causal, effects. Business owner, greedy business owners. They might even start to impose price control saying that, hey, I can fix the problem. Even though I caused it with my left hand, I can fix it with my right hand. Load of BS. There are a bunch of thieves. What have I said all uh, before in this show? Okay. What have I've always said? Inflation is the tool of the rich and the ruling class to further enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. They increase asset prices, and guess who has a lot of assets? The rich, the wealthy, the ruling class. They have assets. We don't. We don't have that many, not compared to them. They've got billions of dollars worth of assets, maybe more. We maybe have thousands. If if we're prudent, we build up thousands. Maybe if you're doing well, you got millions, but still. Now, if you got millions, you're doing pretty good, right? I would imagine you're not poor. You're not broke, right? Because poverty, being poor, it's really more of a mindset. It's it's not an actual financial uh, classification of someone's finances. But with that stated, seriously, it's the ri- inflation is what the rich do, okay, to further enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else. We actually talked about this literally in the last episode. That's what inflation was for. It, it, it has always been for. It's to further enrich the, the ruling class's wealth at the expense of the poor little peons in the society. It's a way for them to pay off their debt. You see, they, they create debt. They make it very cheap by lowering interest rates. They make it very easy for them to get. They go into a lot of debt. They pay very little in interest rates. And guess what? They go off and they buy that money. Because they're the first ones that get the that get the money, they get to spend it before the money starts to devalue. They get to buy up a lot of the goods and services before prices rise. By the time it gets down to you and I, the prices have already risen, and we and we would are that's why wages tend to lag behind inflation. Now I don't know if that's always the case, but ninety a lot most of the time wages lag behind inflation. That's why. Because the money is given to the rich and the ruling class and the and the well-connected, politically, economically well-connected people at the top. And then they spend it on stuff before prices rise. 
because prices in order for the prices to rise the money has to get down to us right you know it's not so there the, the person who buys stuff the person who creates money and then spends it has all the benefit they're basically getting something for nothing because that money didn't exist before it's it's more or less it, it, if in a way you could think of it as theft it is theft it is like a thief goes into his garage and forges fraudulently a lot of money he creates a lot of money out of thin air and he goes and buys stuff but the money is fake it's not even real now of course the because it comes from the government they say it's real money right it's not fake we made it you know it's got our stamp on it all that kind of stuff but the effect is the same as the thief the counterfeiter it's the same thing he counterfeited money and then bought stuff with the money before anybody knew it was happening he bought something for nothing. He effectively stole items that he purchased with that fake money that he created. He's getting, he's pulling items out of the economy and the wealth and the money he's using didn't exist, doesn't exist. It's fake. It's theft. That's what it is. Inflation is a hidden tax and taxation is theft, ladies and gentlemen. It is the weapon of choice for the rich and the wealthy, the ruling class of society. That's the truth. I know I say that all the time. I say, I say that's the truth all the time, but it is. It's the truth. So what can we do about it? All right, what can we do? Let, let's stop whining and complaining because this is the world we live in, okay? I don't expect hyperinflation, right? But, you know, seeing anything from 4 to 8%, there's, no, there's a chance. And it depends on uh, it depends on what items and what industry you're talking about. It's not going to be the same across the board, right? But what can we do? Well, we can buy assets, real assets that are rare, have high demand, and have value. Okay, value is subjective. That's one of the best. You know, that's one of the the greatest contributions of the Austrian school is uh, economics. Is that value is subjective? Okay, but with that said. You know, that's just a side note. You know, what can we buy? Well, a lot of people will tell you to buy gold and silver, precious metals, things of that nature. That's really not bad advice. I have some silver. I, I, I'm always buying more. And, you know, I still think that gold and silver are at low prices. In this ebook, they basically say the same thing, that gold and silver are one asset that really hasn't seen a massive rise. It saw some rise because some of that inflated dollars, again, and once the money is created, the money has to flow into the item in order to increase the prices. So the money has to be created over here on the left, and that has to flow, has to have a bridge, right? It has to flow and walk across the bridge to the other item on the right. <laughs> I don't know if that's a really weird way of talking about it. Basically, look, the money that's created has to flow in there in order to see prices rise. Okay? So if the money fl flows into TVs, you'll see prices increase on TVs because there's a limited number of TVs, right? We didn't increase the production of TVs. However, if it doesn't flow into gold and silver, then you're not going to see prices of gold and silver rise. However, historically, I believe over... 2,000 years or something, hundreds and thousands of years of, of historical data shows that money at some point, inflated money, money that was ginned up out of thin air, does typically f flow into gold and silver. Okay? It, it historically shows. Now, his, now history is uh, just because something happened in the past does not mean it's going to happen in the future, right? Uh, historical performance does not necessarily equal future performance. However, it's the only measuring stick that we have. We have to measure against something. When we, when we try to value something, it's the same thing. You know, you can't just randomly place a value on something. Value is subjective, yes, but you need something to compare it to. It's the same thing with, with this. We don't necessarily, we need something to compare you know, the history of pri prices to in order to determine what prices are going to do in the future, we have to look in the past. And historically, money eventually flows in to, to gold and silver. It, it, and that, that's eventually what happens. So, you don't buy it as a speculative investment. 
Okay, you can trade it if you want. Uh, you know, I mean, I know lots of people who traded on the futures markets. You can totally do that. I mean, I'm not recommending you do that. I, I hey, if you want to, more power to you. I tr- I'm a aspiring trader myself. You know, I would not at all be opposed to trading gold and silver. In fact, it's one of the items in my portfolio that I would like to trade on the futures market. However, okay, however, comma, you know, it's I wouldn't invest in it. You know, for speculation purposes, it's it's I, because the prices rise and fall. They're volatile. They go up and down. The, if there's a crash, the gold, the price of gold and silver is going to tank. Okay, that's what happened in 2008. The tank, the, the 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 economic crisis hit. The crash happened, and the price of gold and silver fell. Okay, at least the spot price, the price that you see on the charts, that fell. All right. So, what does that mean? If if you're buying it have a very long time horizon. It is an inf- it is an insurance policy against inflation. That's how I always like to view it. I don't view it as an investment. I view it as a kind of like a savings account but one that changes value and not necessarily all in your favor. Um but it's a it's a, it's a risk that you're going to take. But it is it's an insurance policy. And again, none of this is a recommendation to go buy and sell silver. I'm just saying that it's an option. Okay? And of silver and gold which would I, I prefer silver because it's affordable. The vast majority of people can get into it. You know, I prefer silver. Okay. It's more obtainable, but gold works too. Okay. But if you're going to be exchanging anything, I think silver's easier to offload and a whole bunch of other stuff. But again, it's my own personal opinion. It's not financial advice, right? So you can buy gold and silver, something that I'm doing. And uh, if you actually want to get a free silver coin, this is, I have a, a kind of an affiliate program with uh, Money Metals Exchange. It's one of my favorite places to go and buy silver. If you go and you mention my name, Matthew Spaziti, then uh, which you know, if you need a spelling of my last name, you just look at the title of the show. <laughs> it's Matthew Spaziti program. But if you go and you mention my name, then you can basically you'll get a free coin, and then I will also get a free coin as well. We'll both get a free coin, and uh, yeah, that'd be freaking awesome. So if you guys. If you guys are interested and you and you like Money Metals Exchange, you know, it helps support the show. You know, it, it, it'll increase both of our uh, silver holdings and things of that nature. So anyways, that wasn't, I wasn't planning on, on pitching that, but if you want to, it's a great way to do it. That said though, okay, it's one way that you can do it, all right? You can go buy gold and silver and things of that nature. The other stuff you could do, uh, fine art. Okay, fine art. It's highly subjective, I, I will tell you. Uh, but if the art is rare, you know, if, if they're not making it anymore, then odds are it could be a decent place. Although, it, it's kind of, I don't know anything about art. Okay, I mean, I, I don't like modern art and I have my opinions and my tastes, but I don't know anything about the value of art. I, I just don't know anything about it. All right, it's highly subjective and it is risky like anything else. So if you're going to, you know, advance into that area, be, I wouldn't recommend it unless you do a ton of research. Maybe talk to someone who's already has some experience in doing it. Maybe talk to, well, due to regulations, I have to say a financial advisor. So I'm going to say a financial advisor, but the vast majority of them, yeah, I don't think they're going to know anything about investing in art, but, you know, legal reasons per the overlords, go talk to your financial advisor. This is not fine, you know, investing advice, but a fine art, you could do that, get some benefit out of it. You know, if you're, if you're successful, you could buy a nice piece of art, hang it on your wall. It maintains value. It goes up in value. You're doing good. You know, uh, you can invest in watches, historical antique watches. These are great things. I love watches. Again, I don't know enough about historical antique watches, but again, I mean, two of the most, ex- the fanciest brands, okay, for watches are Rolex, which is a Swiss watchmaker. Most people know of Rolex and I, I can't, I don't know. I, I might be butchering the name, but Patek Philippe. Patek uh, Philippi, something like that. I uh, I don't know, but that's the second most popular Swiss brand. There's, of course, Breitling, Omega, or, or Omega. There's a lot of other ones that are out there, but Rolex and Patek are the most highly sought after watches when it comes to antique ones. And you can get a Rolex for like 10 grand. You can get a historical Rolex for 10 grand that's highly, highly, highly valuable. So I know a little bit in that area. I know some stuff that you can look at, but again, I'm no expert on that. I do like collecting watches. I do have a small watch collection. Most of them are not really anything that would be considered 
anything of value, okay? If you're if you're investing in watches that you're for value and to in hopes that it rises with inflation, look, you don't really want to be wearing them. Okay, they're not for wearing. They're for sticking in in a safe somewhere. They're not for wearing. Okay, so if you're going to start a collection of that, just just keep that in mind. So with that said, you you could do that. You could also do uh, antique firearms. Those are highly collectible. There are some modern firearms that are collectible as well. That's a decent option. Again, anything that is rare and has value, it's easy to liquidate. What is liquidation? It's selling. Easy to sell and get out of, right? Anything that that is easy to to sell and has value and has demand and is limited in number. These are things that are going to hold their value most of the time, okay? Most of the time, these are the types of things that are going to hold their value when it comes to, uh, you know, monetary inflation and all that kind of stuff. And so though that's stuff that you can consider. Of course, real estate, classic cars, the list goes on and on. It really does. It goes on and on. All right. You know, heck, you might even be able to do some uh, consumer goods like uh, cigarettes. I mean, they don't go bad or at least they, 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 they don't go bad for a while. Granted, I'm not recommending you do this, but you could in theory, you could. You know, of course, where are you going to sell some cigarettes? I don't know. Amazon? <laughs> you could you could try. I mean, sure, you could sell it on Amazon. Uh, Walmart has a market. I think you can sell stuff on Walmart, kind of like just like Amazon does. Uh, stuff of that nature. I, I think that's the case. Or there's always eBay and Craigslist and stuff like that. So anyways, with that said, that's some stuff that you can do. But ladies and gentlemen, before uh, the show is basically about to be over. The, this is the end of the show. And the most important thing, though, is your investing in your own human capital, okay? That is the most important thing that you can do is to invest in your own human capital, increase your skill set, and start your own business, okay? If you own your own business, if you own the brand, you can increase prices if, when, and as inflation is rising. You can increase the prices of your goods and services. Owning a business is probably the most important thing because odds are, if you only have a thousand to five thousand dollars in silver or gold, you're not really doing much. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not helpful, but it's not really going to save you. Okay, it's not going to be that helpful. What you you need tons of money in this stuff. All right, and if you are like everybody else, if you're like me, you don't have access to millions of dollars. So the best thing that you can do, sure, if you want to buy gold and silver, go ahead and do that right? If that's what you want, it's not financial advice, but if you want to do that, talk with your financial advisor. Again, that's per the overlords regulations. But if that's what you want, then hey, more power to you. But the best thing that I think you could do and you should do is to become financially free, control the source of your income, start a business. I say it almost at the end of every episode because I believe in it so much. I'm working on it right now. I got the podcast. I'm working on my trading. My trading of it itself is a business. Okay. And then when I, you know, I'm, I want to be teaching people how to trade. I'm working on my trading boot camp. I've learned a lot in the years and I'm, I'm going to be, you know, tr- teaching people how to do that. You know, it's going to be a month long boot camp. It's not going to be very expensive, but the, the, the seating is limited. However, I, I can't give you a date as to when that's going to be finished. But oh, in the future, it's something I'm going to do. Right. And I'm going to control the price of it. And I'm going to be able to teach people all the basics so that it accelerates their education. Right? And I can't get into overly complicated stuff. I mean, I can, I know it, but I think it's more applicable. It's more uh, about, for me, it's more the, the basics, right? And I feel like there's a lack of the base, the knowledge out there. I think there's a, there's a lot of people who kind of brush over it too quickly. So I'd like to cover it. I think, I think is necessary. Not to mention, I think I have a, a very cool and unique way of explaining it. So if you like the way that I explain stuff, you know, economics, you're going to like the way that I do when, when I explain trading concepts and stuff of that nature. And I'm not a complex guy. I'm not some super genius. Okay. I'm a normal guy, just like everybody else. I try to explain things the way that normal people are going to understand. You know, you know, not, <laughs> that makes any sense. So anyways, ladies and gentlemen, but I, I really think that taking control of the source of your income is the most important thing that you can do. That, that is my opinion. 
So, anyways, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for the episode. If you liked it, make sure to like and subscribe wherever you are. If you're loving the show and you come here each and every week, first and foremost, I want to say thank you. It, it really, really is an amazing thing that you guys are doing. It. it Thank you so much for coming here every week. If you like it and you're getting a lot of value out of it, please, the, the most important thing that you can do is to share the show. Share it on the social medias. Share it with your friends. I've always liked to say, share it with three people. You know, one person, you're not really sure. You, you think they need to hear it, and the other two, you, you know you're there with they're going to love it, right? Share it. Share it with as as many people as you as you can. I always ask for three people, but hey, share the show. It's the most important thing. If you like the message here, financial freedom, living the liberty lifestyle, right? Controlling the source of your income, being independent as much as we can. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the most important thing you can do. So thank you so much for sharing the show. You know, can please continue to share it and also, one more thing before we head out, if you are getting value out of it, then go leave me a rating and review on iTunes. It helps the show get in the rankings and therefore helps the show to get to be more visible. So if you guys are loving what I'm doing here, then please consider doing that stuff. And hey, if you'll do all that for me, I'll see you guys in the next episode. As always, know the risks, plan accordingly, and have a great day.